Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel. And our guest today is an Associate Dean of Medical Education Quality and Integration and is a health science clinical professor at the University of California, Riverside School of Medicine and a health science clinical professor at UC Riverside. She's an MS specialist at the UCR Health and has worked with many families affected by MS for over 15 years now and serves on the National MS Society's Healthcare Advisory Council. She's led the first publication, first published survey documenting the nature and extent of caregiver mistreatment of adults with MS in the United States. And is here today to talk about a research which focuses on understanding and preventing the abuse and neglect of those affected with MS. Dr. Elizabeth Morrison Banks, thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Free thinking. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for uh, your interest in this topic. And Come on. What an important issue. You know, I have MS. I know you know that. I don't know if you did or not, but I do. And I was quite surprised to read a study that um, and I was surprised in some ways, but then not surprised. Read a study that was focusing on mistreatment of those in the adult community with MS. When I've recognized in the past that there have been several studies that have pointed to mistreatment among those who are differently abled. You know, uh, we have caregivers who are out there, you know, we hope with the intention of providing good quality care and help to those who are suffering differently in different modalities. But then we find out that in some of those modalities, there's a lot of mistreatment. And I was surprised to find that there's especially mistreatment in the MS community. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you know, your study, and um, the study began back in 2009, is that correct? That's right, yes. It was published in 2020, so you looked at this over 11 years period of time and came away with some conclusions that I bet surprised even yourself. The, the conclusions did surprise us. I mean, we weren't completely surprised by them because we expected to find some rate of abuse and neglect of people with advanced MS by caregivers, but we were surprised that those rates appear to be more than 50%. Which really is, is disturbing. I mean, you know, you would think that, um, you know, they would be low. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, less than 10%, but we're finding that, you know, it's greater than 50% in a community that is really so traumatically affected by an illness. Um, let's go in a little bit of detail. Talk to me a little bit about what you found. Sure, sure. So what we did was we uh, created an instrument that we called StressMS, uh, which is a questionnaire that screens for abuse and neglect in people living with MS specifically. Uh, so we did a preliminary study to, to do a pilot test of that questionnaire in uh, Southern California with in-person interviews with people living with MS and, and also their caregivers. And these were informal caregivers, I would call them. So not uh, professional caregivers who staff nursing, skilled nursing facilities or other paid caregivers. These were uh, the, the population we were looking at um, the people with MS were taken care of by 
usually family members or friends, sometimes spouses or spouse equivalents. And so, I mean, I think it was, it, it just was seemed, it just disturbed me when I saw that the preliminary study found nearly 55% of all American adults with advanced MS disclosed undergoing some form of mistreatment since they started receiving care from a family member or a friend. And, you know, um, the most common mistreatment were psychological, which was 44.2%, and financial, 25.2%. And, you know, I, I just, um, you know, it's like four out of 10 people with advanced multiple sclerosis or MS are emotionally abused by someone responsible for caring for them. And that, I, I just, I find that it almost makes me speechless, you know, because, you know, people I can understand, you know, people who have, are afflicted relying so heavily on another individual and then have that individual abuse them but you found that a lot of those that were abused were reticent to even discuss it, correct? Right, right. And we did find that we did, in addition to the survey that you know uh, we published this fall, uh, we also had, uh, my colleagues and I did a focus group study with smaller numbers of people with MS and their caregivers who were most of whom were living in abusive situations. And we found that it was very often the caregiver that disclose the abuse or neglect rather than the person with MS. And our, what we thought was that um, most likely some of the individuals living with MS weren't comfortable disclosing abuse or neglect. They were trying, sometimes we thought to protect the caregiver, perhaps because they were concerned about losing a caregiver and felt that they might be in a worse situation if they didn't have any caregiver at all, if they did disclose what was going on. And that's, that's also very sad to hear. It is very sad because in some ways, some of them try to almost justify the abuse by the caregiver as if they were to blame, right? Exactly. Right. And we did hear comments like that in the focus group study that some people with MS were saying, well, I, you know, I am a burden or uh, that, that sort of comment. Um, I, I guess I make it hard for my caregiver because I'm demanding and that, that's unfortunate, but I mean, it's the reality that some people do feel that way. And maybe that prevents them from seeking help. Yeah, I guess I, 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 I in some ways, and personally, though I fought those feelings, I kind of understand in a way, I don't know if you know, I, I you probably don't, but I, I suffered a major hemorrhagic stroke um, for almost three years ago. And you know, for the first 10 days of my stroke, I literally was almost um, paralyzed. Um, I shouldn't use that term paralyzed, but I was had really extremely limited mobility and the ability to care for myself. I think the first five days, I literally probably spent maybe less than six or seven hours awake. Um, and I don't even remember a lot of that, that time. And, and I required you know, just around the clock care. And, you know, I remember my wife um, literally slept in the hospital bed or in a hospital, on a cot in a hospital room with me um, in intensive care in the room with me uh, for 30 days. And the entire time uh, she was there, I found it really hard to not think of myself as a burden um, and think of myself as, you know, I mean, there were there were times and for moments there that I, 
I remember distinctly wishing that, you know, oh Lord, I hope that I'm not laying force her to have to care for me like this for the rest of my life. I would rather be dead. Um, and I know a lot of people who probably are in the advanced stages of mass feel that way. And it's hard to figure how do you get a person to get out of that thought I was very blessed. I have a wife who is very caring and understanding. And, you know, I mean, she would, I, I think, smack me upside the backside of my head for even making statements like this right now. Um, and I, I say that jokingly, but, you know, I mean, she literally thought it and knew it and, and felt it as her duty to care for me. And, you know, I mean, now three years later, you know, there are times from time to time, you know, I go through maybe a small period of time where I need a little assistance and she jumps to, you know, jumps on deck immediately. I just can't imagine somebody fearing that the person that they love or care about so much would turn their back on them. Sure. Right. Well, first, I'm sorry to hear you had to go through that experience with a hemorrhagic stroke, you know, um, and I'm glad to see you, you know, doing so well now. Oh yeah, I was very, very, I'm very, very blessed. The, the type of stroke that I had uh, been been you know, emphasized by so many different doctors. I was treated at the New York Presbyterian, but but treated by some of the top stroke doctors in the country, and they said that I was very blessed to have really even survived the stroke period, and to have been able to come back from it the way I have is you know nothing short of miraculous in some ways, and I I'm, I feel very blessed. And and uh, but you know when I I read uh, trying to prep for this discussion, I was really just saddened um, that so many people are going through this and going through it in silence. So we need to raise the awareness level. Let's talk a little bit about the risk factors that seem to jump out during your, your study. Right, right. So one risk factor that we found that was really important um, and perhaps not surprising was alcohol use, either by the person with MS or the caregiver. I'm talking about significant alcohol use, not an occasional glass of wine with dinner, that sort of thing. So that was a, a risk factor for abuse and neglect just in itself. Um, a caregiver having a mental illness was another risk factor. And that, that's a harder one to deal with, perhaps. Um, and that's a harder one yeah. to even know, I guess. I mean, you know, you're dealing with the patient and not their caregiver. And so maybe a lot of times that the caregiver is forced into a, a position to be the caregiver without having been evaluated before they started doing that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and sometimes it's maybe just a matter of necessity that there is no one else to provide the care and um, you can some families, as you know, living with MS are dealing with financial challenges and um, they, having MS for many people disenfranchises them uh, if they're unable to work and maybe the caregiver is unable to work because they're providing care so, so much of the time. Um, so I don't know, all those issues are, are hard to tease out, but I, I think you're right that we need to do better somehow. We need to figure out a better approach to this whole important problem. And I think it's not just when it comes to MS, it's probably when it comes to almost any form of debilitating illness in America today, and especially now that we've just gone through 
this last year of COVID and we don't necessarily see an end in sight, even though, you know, everybody's jumping up and down and, you know, applauding as if it's over because we've now identified vaccines that we know we are having extreme difficulty getting distributed and not just distributed, but administered to a population. So, you know, have you seen, did you see any, I know your study went from 2009 to 2020, but have you seen any differences in the last few months? Well, not directly from this study, but so I, I should clarify, we, we collected our data in for this national survey uh, in 2011 through 2012. Uh-huh. So we, we, but we've been, you know, it took us a while analyzing the data um, before we published the study. So it, there is, it, I think there are some major differences now that we don't fully understand as a MS treatment community about what's going on during the COVID-19 pandemic for people with MS. Um, but I think you've highlighted a very important issue because we know from other published studies that people living with all kinds of disabling conditions are at greater risk of being abused or neglected during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, in fact, I just saw a study that was published recently in Lancet uh, by the, com- it was the commission statement of the 75th session of the United Nations General Assembly. and it was a call to action on a number of different uh, specific issues related to the COVID-19 pandemic. But one was, I think, an important call for health equity and social justice during the pandemic. And um, the United Nations specifically addressed vulnerable populations, including um, poor people, older people, um, indigenous populations, and people with health conditions. Uh, including people with disabilities. So I, I can only imagine if we did do this survey again right now, we would probably see more abuse and neglect because of the pandemic in people living with advanced MS. I mean, I, I, it's almost like, I, I don't even know, I'm trying to figure out what to ask is, how do we combat this? Um, you know, I, I think it has to begin with the journey is beginning with diagnosis, I would assume, before it gets to the point that it advances to an advanced level where individuals need that kind of round-the-clock care. But so often we only focus on the patient and don't include the family and don't include the caregivers in the conversations as this moves forward. So, I mean, do I think we probably need to do a better job? I mean, I, I, you know, here I'm talking about something that's going to require major funding that we seem to be reticent to provide no matter what as a nation. But it would seem to me that, you know, anyone diagnosed with a debilitating disease should have the resources available to bring in their family members so that they are participants in the journey. Absolutely. I think you're, you're absolutely right. You know, I've thought about issues like this quite a bit lately because, you know, as you mentioned, my clinical practice is at the UCR Multiple Sclerosis Center, University of California, Riverside, UCR Health, and I'm providing care now by telemedicine to people living with MS and hopefully their family members can join too. So I, I always encourage people to, if they possibly can have video visits, rather than just telephone appointments with us. And that way 
you know, if their family members there, I can see them and interact with them as well. And, you know, sometimes I, I notice the family members of the, the people with MS, you know, when I'm doing a clinical visit by telemedicine, the family member might be kind of hovering on the sidelines or they don't feel like they, they're not sure if they should be part of the conversation. But if the person with MS is comfortable with it, I try to invite the family member to join the conversation too, because I think you're right. It's important. Their voices are heard, their concerns are heard, and maybe we can do something to help if the family caregiver is under stress. And, but there really isn't, I, I mean, are there programs that I'm unaware of out there that family members can be enrolled in that are funded? I mean, you know, when you look at insurance, you know, insurance normally provides for the patient, but not necessarily for the family member, or it yes. may provide, you know, funding for a caregiver, but not if that caregiver is a family member. So it's, it's just, it's right. so bizarre that, you know, we look at this as if it's just a, a one vertical where it's multi-vertical at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. I was talking with recently with a person with MS, who's one of my patients at UCR Health. And um, he was telling me that his mom was able to become the paid caregiver through in-home support services. And this was in Riverside County. I don't, I don't know if this is possible. And in other counties uh, to that same extent. Uh, I, I don't usually hear that, a story like that, but I thought that was good that, uh, you know, family members are able to get some, a little bit of financial support to help with the caregiving. And I know that the National MS Society does have a, at least our local chapter in Southern California and Nevada has a respite program that family members can apply for to get um, I don't know that it's financial support, but I think it's uh, just respite care if they need to get away for a weekend or take care of some personal business and they have to, you know, take a break from caregiving for a short time. I don't know that that's enough, but it's a start. Well, it seems to me like, you know, I think it would be money better served, especially because, you know, of course, insurance companies would pay less for non-professionally trained individuals, but you know, these people, you know, I, I recently participated in a um, documentary release uh, that's called uh, Sky Blossoms, which is focused on, you know, the children of our veterans who literally step up to the plate and are the caregivers for a lot of our disabled veterans. You know, a lot of people believe that veterans only get care from the VA hospitals, but, you know, they live at home 24-7. And wow. these veterans, you know, don't go back and forth to the hospital every single day. They rely on their family members to be the people who step up to the plate and do some, provide some services that are only provided most of the time in hospital settings. And I, it seems to me that we, it would be money well spent if we were to support and shore those people up, giving them some validity in what it is that they do that might help their psychological footprint a little bit more to make them feel more valued so that they would be less apt to abuse the patient. I know that seems like a little bit of a weird little you know, roundabout, but um, do you see any, you know, um, you know, focus on that from the medical standpoint, from, you know, the hospital standpoint or the care provider standpoint? I think that's a wonderful idea. I mean, I love the 
the idea of the project you mentioned with veterans to help support the family caregivers as well for veterans with disabilities. Well, we just why not? We did that as a movie, but they weren't getting any extra services provided to them from the VA, though I think Uh, that that should happen. I mean, and then again, but, you know, when you start talking about providing funds and providing financial support, you know, we can't seem to find that money unless, you know, we're giving that money to rich people. (laughs) It's so strange. Right, exactly. No, that I mean, I I agree with you 100%. We need more research to help vulnerable populations and their caregivers need more funding. I mean, research takes funding. And then once you have the research data, you have to think about how do we put these data into use? How do we, you know, it's one thing to study the problem, but if, if we're, we really need to put our money where our mouth is, I think as a, as a nation. I agree. Look, you know what? I got to pay some bills. So I got to take a little break real quick. And uh, then I want to come back and talk about some things that, you know, maybe from what you've gleaned out of this study, that might be advice to both the patient and the caregiver of things that they could start thinking about right now while they're working together. Because I know, you know, a lot of people will tune into this podcast and, and think, well, you know, geez, I'm in that situation, but I wish I had some way to be able to help my caregiver you know, take that little respite in the middle of the day. So let's talk a little bit about that when we come back. You know, um, I'm going to take a break. Uh, and for those of you that are tuned in, thank you so much for being a part of Free Thinking of Montella today. And again, we're joined by Dr. Elizabeth Morrison-Banks, who is an Associate Dean of Medical Education, Quality, and Integration, and is a Health Sciences Clinical Professor at the University of Southern California, Riverside. And she works at the School of Medicine and is a Health Sciences Clinical Professor at UC Riverside. And she's also, you know, an MS specialist and who works with many families afflicted with MS and have been doing so for over 15 years. We'll take a little break. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. And thanks for knowing so much for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel. And our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Morrison-Banks, who is a Associate Dean of Medical Education Quality Integration and is a Health Sciences Clinical Professor at the University of California, Riverside. She works for the School of Medicine and is a Health Sciences Clinical Professor at UC Riverside. She's also an MS Specialist and uh, she works at UCR Health and has worked with many families afflicted with MS over the last 15 years and uh, serves as the National MS Society Healthcare Advisory Council. She serves on that council. And she led the first published survey documenting the nature and extent of caregiver mistreatment among adults with MS in the United States. And it's here today to talk a little bit about the research and and focus on understanding and preventing uh, the abuse and neglect of those afflicted with MS. So thank you, doctor, so much for being a part of uh, Free Thinking with Montella today. Let's talk a little bit about the things that maybe we could give to some of our viewers who, you know, are in this situation. They are either a caregiver or they are a patient in a home where they have a family member providing care. What are some of the things that those family members and those caregivers could do to basically shore themselves up? Right. Very important question. So I think one thing that family members can do, people who are taking care of someone living with advanced MS especially, would be stay connected to a support community, whether that's family or friends, um, health professionals, um, agencies, uh, 
who serve people living with MS and other disabling conditions, whatever works for, for you as a family caregiver, just to make sure you have, you have a good support system yourself. I think that's very helpful, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic when it's so easy to get isolated, even with the best of intentions, um, people trying to stay as connected as they can to their support community. It's harder when you have to do that um, in social isolation. Um, I think it's important also to practice uh, caring for oneself. Um, you know, I think just like we, we tell people living with MS, it's important to have a healthy diet and get exercise. And those things are, are really important. They're also important for people who are serving as caregivers. You know, you, you have to take care and be strong yourself to, to help others most effectively. I mean, we, we do see, we do see right now, I mean, with, with, uh, you know, looking at the caregivers across this country who have the first responders who have stepped up to the plate to help us during this pandemic, there are so many of them who are feeling depressed right now and feeling anxious right now. And, you know, they bear the brunt of being, you know, on the front line and aren't getting some of the support that they feel is necessary. But I think we know support that's necessary that they need to have to keep them short up. I mean, you know, what's that old saying? You can't be of value to someone else unless you're, you know, taking care of yourself. And we have, you know, caregivers who are out here right now in hospitals that are doing pulling two, two shifts back to back and getting a couple hours of rest and going back and pulling two shifts back to back. Um, and everybody thinks that because we have, you know, a vaccine on the way, we're over this, but we're not going to be over this for a couple of years. And then throw on top of that a debilitating disease like MS and caregivers having to live through that along with living through COVID um, any, any suggestions on some books or some other things that people could read to help shore themselves up? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, I'll have to think about books, um, that I would recommend, especially, um, I think. Send a, send a list of those to us and we'll include it in this podcast, uh, even after the fact. Okay. Okay. I could do a more thorough job in that way. So I guess though, as, in terms of reading materials, I think, you know, there are a lot of great websites, um, including, you know, the National MS Society, the MS Association of America, there's an MS Foundation. Um, we have a local uh, in Southern California in the Coachella Valley. Um, there's a group called Act for MS that has, you know, done a great job with their website. And I think just reading sometimes uh, for those who like to read or watch videos to get some inspiration. I think these are good resources and um, it doesn't have to be limited to MS specific resources. I think there's all kinds of apps now that you can use to provide, you know, yourself with some just reminders of self taking care of yourself. I know my, um, my Apple watch dings and just tells me to get up and stretch, you know, and, there, there's so many resources available. I think it's just a matter of thinking about what works for you and. And not feeling alone. I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, especially what, what, what troubled me some was some of the comments that came back from some of the patients in your study that, that basically almost said in, um, I'm not 
paraphrasing, but you know, some of them had give the indication that, well, you know, I kind of deserve it because I'm the burden or that's that attitude. And I think that, you know, we need to make sure that people don't allow themselves to fall into that. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the patients need to recognize that, you know, it's not your fault that you have an illness and especially a debilitating illness. And no, people don't have the right to abuse you. I mean, you know, I think that me just saying that, I think that I want some of our, our viewers to know that no, you don't, no one has the right to abuse someone else. And you are not the reason why you're being abused. So, you know, don't sit back and say, I'm going to take it because I, I should take it. You know what I mean? I think that you need to, to reach out and, and make sure you tell a friend or, or and for those other friends that are, are come by and visit, if they see, you know, a person who's a loved one, who's a friend that, that you know is in some form of extremis, it's time to reach out and say something. It's not because you want to get their caregiver in trouble. It's because you want to help save the friend. Right, exactly. I know as a, as a healthcare provider, I'm a mandated reporter for suspected abuse or neglect. So if I even think, even suspect that that's going on and someone I'm taking care of as a patient, I have to report it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, even if someone's not mandated to report it, you're, you know, you can help the, the person, the family in this situation by speaking up. I think, yeah, I think silence is one of the biggest enemies in this issue. Just well, I'm so feeling glad. like, well, it's not my place to say something or I don't want to interfere. This is a personal private matter in this domestic relationship. You know, I think I, I understand pe- what people feel that way, but I think it's also, like you said, really important to, s- to speak up if you're a family member, another family member or a friend, and you feel like something's not right in the relationship. And I noticed the one thing that you, you did see, there was a little bit of a difference between the way men and women respond, both as patients and as caregivers. And, you know, some of your male respondents seem to basically feel as if, well, you know, if that's the worst I got to go through, then I'll go through that because I'm putting these people through what they're going through. And then some of the female respondents seem to feel like, well, I'll accept this because, you know, it would be much worse if I didn't have the caregiver that I have. Um, Did you see any other differences between men and women like that? Yes, especially in the focus group study that I mentioned earlier in this podcast, um, where we had separate focus groups of men and women with MS, men and women caregivers. And it seemed um, particularly some of the men living with MS appeared to find it embarrassing or difficult to admit that they were undergoing abuse because it I think just the way our society is, it's, it may be harder sometimes for men to, to, uh, they feel like they're admitting to something that they're ashamed of. And I I hope people won't feel ashamed that they'll feel empowered to reach out for help. And, um, I think, but I think there, a lot of work needs to be done in our society to break down some of these barriers to communication. Is there anywhere anybody can reach out to at UCR? Like uh, they can go up on a website there to maybe at least start a conversation that they can then reach out in their own community and look for help from? Yes, absolutely. Um, We have in our MS program, we have a wonderful psychologist, uh, Dr. David Franklin, who works with us. And he's met with some of my 
patients living with MS who've been going through psychosocial challenges. Um, and I think other MS programs have resources like this as well, uh, very often. Do you have a website that maybe somebody can go to? Yes, at ucrhealth.com. And yeah, and, we, okay. and I'd be happy, you know, uh, any way I can help. Absolutely. So we'll have people reach out to, to your office and, and just, you know, because there may be people who tune into this and say, well, I happen to be in that situation, but I just don't know what to do. So you can at least give them a, a starting point uh, where they can at least begin their journey to, to, you know, fairness. I mean, I think that's really what this is all about at the end of the day. I mean, again, you know, if you're a patient, you're a patient, not because of your own fault. You're a patient because you happen to be inflicted with an illness that is as debilitating as MS can be, and you need help. And, you know, there should be no shame in that game, in a sense of no shame asking for help, and there should be no shame when, in fact, you determine that you're being abused and the help that you're getting, you know, there's no one needs to live in that situation. Right, absolutely. And, you know, if I can add to, I think it's really important for health professionals to maintain awareness of this issue. And it's okay to ask about it. Um, you know, I think sometimes health professionals might feel like this is uh, an offensive issue to bring up. But I think it's important to be able to address it with patients and family members who are dealing with MS and other disabling conditions. How about, how about let's shift for a second and go to a positive note now. I know there have been breakthroughs in the last couple of years, at least where, you know, I, when I was first diagnosed with MS, which was back in 1999, 2000, you know, we only had maybe four different medications available back then. And now, you know, there seems to be in, and the mindset back there was entirely different than the mindset of today among clinicians and doctors. But let's talk a little bit about some hope. Is there anything coming down the pike that may be hopeful for MS patients to be aware of? Were you talking about uh, for treatment of MS? Yeah, I mean, I know I'm just on my treatment of and for hope for MS. I mean, you know, I know that now we have close to 20 different medications that are out there and we know that not one yes. size fits all. So everyone needs to be on that journey. But one thing I know we found out in the last four or five years is that the sooner a person does go on some sort of a medical, reg medical regimen, the better their outcomes seem to be. We know Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, yes. But um, how about, is there anything else that you know coming down the pike here that uh, we should be aware of? Yeah, I absolutely. It's such an exciting time in MS research, particularly for MS disease modifying therapies. And as you mentioned, Montel, there's several new therapies that have come out uh, on the market recently, just this year. Um, there, you know, in addition to the platform injectable therapies that used to be uh, all that we had, uh, we also have a number of different oral treatments now and um, more infusions that are available to people uh, living with MS. And I know I get a lot of questions about stem cell transplant uh, and it's not quite ready for prime time yet, but uh, again, exciting research going on. And I, I think if um, for those who are able to um, get care in a large MS center that, is, you know, has a stem cell transplant program, 
that is becoming closer to being a reality to being, you know, something available for people. Um, I mean, some, some have already benefited from this. I just think it's important to make sure it's done in the context of an MS program. Is there, there, and there, isn't there some research going on right now about some gene editing? I can't remember what the term is called. Um, you know, when they go in and they actually try to modify your DNA or your genes a little bit. Yeah. Very exciting. Yes. And they're remyelinating agents. Maybe also you're, uh, might be referring to remyelinating agents as well. Um, really exciting. I have a colleague, Dr. Seema Tawari Woodruff, uh, who's a PhD MS researcher at UCR. Um, and she is studying remyelinating agents in, in the lab, her lab. Definitely send her my way so she can be a part of Freethinker and Montel. We'd love to be able to share that information with uh, the masses. Absolutely. Right. So I think it is, it is a very exciting time for research and so many different options for treatment and more coming down the pike, dozens of new agents in clinical trials. And I'm excited to see what, you know, what's going to come out on the market in the next few years. I think it sometimes makes it almost confusing for people to sort through all the options. Now it used to be, there were just a few options and the decision-making process was simpler at least. And now there's so many options. I, I know as a, an MS specialist, you know, we, we don't want to, you know, when I'm providing care, I don't want to just direct someone to a brochure and say, well, here, here's 20 different MS disease modifying, modifying therapies you can choose from. Go read this and come back and tell me what you want. That's not really, I don't think a responsible way to, to approach it because it, it's such a, kind of dizzying array of options that I, I find it's all the more important, the more treatments become available year by year that we spend more time talking with people uh, living with MS about what all these options are, what do they mean and um, how do they choose? Well, you know, I, got, I, I, got, I do have one weird question when it comes to a lot of these, uh, why is it that they all seem to be so expensive and all about the same price? I mean, are we going to eventually get to a point where some of these medications come down a little bit and become more affordable for the masses? I hope so. That is a perennial problem. And I know that the cost of the disease modifying therapies has escalated in more and more in recent years. And um, I, I don't know what the answer to that problem is, but we need an answer. Yeah, because... we do. Especially we need an answer here in the United States, because it seems that, you know, almost every one of those medications can be found overseas in a different country for, you know, a quarter of the price that you spend for them here in the United States. And it just seems like at some point in time, are we going to get to a point where we don't have to make so much money off of those who are afflicted with such a, you know, debilitating disease? Right, right. And I know we all know uh, horror stories of individuals living with MS who've had to go off their treatment because of financial challenges you know, they lose health plan coverage for the treatment that they're on and they're not able to start, restart that or start another treatment right away and have a severe exacerbation and end up with more disability. And that it's always uh, very sad to me to see that happen. And that's despite all of our best efforts, the person with MS, their family, the health care team trying to fix that um financial challenge as best we can, as quickly as we can. 
but despite all our best efforts, sometimes people do fall through the cracks. And I think that's tragic, especially thinking about the issues we're talking about, you know, in terms of abuse and neglect of people with advanced MS. And like you said earlier, it's so important that we do focus on good treatment for MS to prevent people from ever going there. Hopefully, I mean, that's the goal that people will hopefully not develop disability to the extent where they're going to require a caregiver. I'd love to see a world uh, sooner than later in which people with MS don't have this fear when they're diagnosed about developing, um, you know, severe disability down the line where they, I, I hope people someday will feel like um, they are confident that they're going to be able to get treatment promptly and effectively so they don't end up in that situation of needing a caregiver someday. Well, I hope that uh, studies like yours point to what's going on and we can bring an end to this. I mean, to help, help a community that, you know, is in such need find relief without having to pay the price of abuse. And so I thank you so much, Dr. Banks, for doing what you've done. And um, hopefully, you know, more people will pay more attention to the study that you have out now. And, and you know, we'll start looking at how we can fix the problem rather than just let it exist. So again, thank you so much for being a part of Free Thinking with Montel today. I want to thank you all for tuning in and make sure that, you know, whenever you need to you know, get a little information and insight, tune in. Uh, we have some of the best, I think, some of the best authorities in the country visiting us on Free Thinking right now. And Dr. Elizabeth Morrison Banks is one of them. So thank you so much, Dr. Banks, for being part of the show today. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thanks for joining me on Free Thinking with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear feedback, so please send us your comments.